0: Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at
1: Bluehost.com.
0: Welcome to John Richardson and the Future Noughts Book of Revelations. It's episode forty-seven: The Future <laughs> of Fizzy Drinks. I'm joined, as ever, by Tinkerbell O'Reilly. Hello. <laughs> and Barry Smells. Hello. <laughs> um, Mark and Ed, it's good to be with you again. Uh, yeah, there's just so much like going on with the world and stuff, like you know, climate and like the score run, that. I just, what are we on about? Episode uh, nine?
2: Thirty three, episode nine. I got it. So yeah. I do know.
0: Yeah, well, sort
1: of. Yeah, I know it's episode nine. Your names, that's not coming back to me. <laughs> I think, do you know what happened there? When you said whatever it was, Tinkerbell o- O'Reilly, yeah. I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm glad Ed's gone for that one because I don't know, because it's kind of like a bet. Like, what's he going to do next? It's going to yes. be better or worse. And I thought, <laughs> Ed's taking it. It'll run out of steam. But then I got Barry Smells.
2: So I should have gone first.
0: Yeah, I think Tinkerbell O'Reilly is the one. Yeah,
2: That uh, is my drag name I don't watch
0: a TED talk by Tinkerbell O'Reilly um, <laughs> Well some bad news to start uh, An email from Tim in sunny Kent uh, Afternoon gents Please find attached my invoice for £1,706 Which is the immediately ascertainable cost to date Of you galvanising my conscience
1: Oops. Um, <laughs> I'm loving this already
0: I am lucky enough to hold some shares and had previously half-heartedly thought about scrutinising those companies through a greener lens, but predictably never got round to it. However, listening to you guys heeding the call, I did just that and sold my shares in shell. Needless to say, I'm sure they didn't notice, but if everyone did it, notably pension funds et al., they presumably would. Well, since selling those shares, the fuel crisis has kicked in nicely and they've gone up, with me missing out on the amount listed to date. And <laughs> to add insult to injury, my own fuel bills have happily ticked upwards likewise. So many thanks indeed. <laughs> Ho-hum, a small price to pay, I'm sure. Of course, hopefully in a few years' time when others follow suit and the fossil fuel industry becomes a less attractive proposition to the right-minded investor, I'll be able to look back and say I sold at the right time, at which point I will rebate you the £1,700, <laughs> honest, the remaining £6 <laughs> is my admin costs uh, to continue. I continue to spread the word about the podcast to my kids and friends, and you may be interested to hear that my friend Paul also loves it and recommended it to his daughter, whose university now, thanks to her, has your podcast on its pre-reading listening list for some of its modules. I'm not entirely sure what this says about the modern university system, but I think it must be positive, surely. Um, sterling work all the best tim in sunny
2: kent i'm now fascinated which modules we are pre-reading and listening for (laughs) yeah how to swear in a public sphere (laughs) swearing
0: in the public domain offensive accents um (laughs) and presumably something slightly climaty um any any of you going to stump up the um, 1700 quid for tim selling
1: his shares in shell i tell you what i mean i'm guessing that he listens to this podcast for free doesn't he he doesn't pay anything to listen to the podcast. If he does, then he's getting scammed because yeah. I ain't getting any of
0: it. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Tim, if you're paying someone, they are doing you over. Indeed. And, we, and we've and we done what is it now, preparation 40 episodes. Oh, this is the ninth episode of the third series, mate. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, all right if you're yeah. not aware of it, yeah. So so really, actually, I would say that you've probably got two and a half grand's worth of value in terms of content from this, dear listener. And uh, we should send you an invoice. Uh, we'll be sending it by return. If you could just send us your address, um, that'd be great. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the topic of um, people,
0: the, the sort of backhanded thanks we get, um, people trying to do the right thing and then regretting it immediately. Chris, the uh, appropriately named Chris Fairweather, ...has uh, been in touch to say, hello all, I've been enjoying the podcast since the beginning, it's been making me think about my decisions, and although I can't put much into practice at the moment, I've made myself a 10-year plan to bring down my carbon footprint. However, I can't seem to get over the impending boom of climate change, which has made me unproductive in everyday life. For example, I had a great morning today working, and then read the headline, last seven years, hottest on record my mind goes, ah, what's the point in trying? There's not going to be a future anyway. And then into the downward spiral of despair. (laughs) I tell you what, Chris, if you're looking for a birthday present, I've got a tour coming up that it sounds like you are bang in the target market. For <laughs> um, why bother trying to build something now? You mentioned in the last podcast, you've come to peace with your work, maybe not being completed in your lifetime, but perhaps you could talk about how to deal with climate anxiety. It's <laughs> starting to become a serious problem in my life. And I guess others feel the same. The appropriately named Chris, not so
2: fair weather. Hmm. Well, I, yeah, I mean, we—I think we empathise with Chris. Um, I mean, I actually wrote the foreword for uh, a book on eco-anxiety by the psychologist, uh, psychiatrist uh, Anishka Gross, who's a
1: a neighbour. He's a, na- a neighbour
2: of mine. Strange. Who's a neighbour yeah. neighbour yeah. of yeah. Mark's.
1: This is rather unfortunate because it meant that Ed had an excuse to come round. <laughs> <laughs> now that's eco anxiety for you oh god yeah. ed's doing a forward for yeah. a book he's doing the book launch it's around the corner he's got to come over to my house as if the climate crisis wasn't enough now i have to have ed come round and talk to me about the book he's helped launch
2: exactly i'll just do an enforced poetry reading at the same time <laughs> just to put the icing on the cake uh, but, but i've been mean, anishka's book is brilliant and and i think you know chris is wrestling with what a lot of us feel and, you yeah know, and as he said mark alluded to this in terms of you know, you don't know whether you're going to see the results of your work necessarily within your own lifetime. Uh, and for me, one of the kind of standout moments, uh, uh, epiphanies that I've had is this, this whole sort of psychological idea of terror management theory, um, which comes from, you know, the idea that we're in constant denial of our own death. And that's the way that we manage our lives, you know, to, to kind of put aside and displace the inevitable. And we do that through lots of different ways. You know, Some of them are spiritual, some of them are material, um, some of them are behavioral. I mean, shopping is and a, a consumptive behavior is actually a good example of terror management theory. Um, and I think we, ha- we also sort of lurch into that a bit when it comes to climate grief, when it can all feel hopeless. You know, I always return back to something that you always say on this podcast, John, is like you get more motivated and connected by... Engaging rather mm. than denying. So, you know, if you took the terror management theory in terms of mortality, it's like, well, yeah, you know, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna die, but that doesn't mean you don't have an extraordinary, rich, and wonderful, creative, productive, and happy life in between. Surely that's the point. And so, even though there may be some impending doom, and it's going to get bumpy, as we always talk about, and it's going to go up and down, it's probably going to get better and worse at the same time we do everything we can along the way because you know, every ton of carbon that doesn't go into the atmosphere alleviates future human suffering, uh, and the web of life in some way, shape or form. And, you know, we'll get into that now in terms of talking to Gabriel Walker, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I totally empathize with what Mr. Fairweather is saying, Good name, uh, by
2: the way, Fairweather indeed. To be talking about climate yeah. anxiety. <laughs>
1: indeed. Um, and I think we all, we all feel it. Um, uh, and I, I I'll echo what we say on this podcast which actually by getting engaged more, you become sort of less anxious because you, you're you you're tying your own life to doing something about it. So the fact he's made this plan and is starting to get on with it is fantastic. And the other thing I always come back to is, um, is the Gandhi quote, which I say a lot on this podcast, which is, you know, what you do will be insignificant, but it's really important that you do it. And, you know, even people I know working at a very high level with huge levers and lots of money, you know, what they do in the grand scheme of things will be insignificant, but it's really important that they do it. And, you know, even by even acknowledging that and talking about it, you know, um, you're doing a really great thing. So, so the anxiety itself is, is a, an indication that you actually give a shit. People who don't give a shit about climate don't have anxiety about it. So the mere fact that you feel that, that, that worry is actually an indication that you're probably doing something right and you should be a bit kinder to yourself, kind doing what you're doing. And the more you do that, the more you'll be able to do, the more you're able to do, the more you encourage other people to do things. And the more we all do that, the better chance we have of you know, getting through this crisis. And just be, be kind to yourself, but acknowledge that it's a real thing. And actually, you know, why would you not acknowledge it? As, as Ed said, it'd be, about, be like not acknowledging your death, which actually at the end of the day is, is fairly silly. Well, a couple of sort of
0: beautifully optimistic responses that both centered around a sort of veiled death threat, sort of saying, You're a good guy, slap yourself on the bat, but I tell you what, mate, you're going to die anyway. <laughs> um, so you might as well do your best. Yeah. But no, wonderful. And, they, you know, I, I also slightly think. In a way, sometimes when a relationship might not be working and it's easier to think, oh, if I was with someone else, it would be better rather than to work on the relationship you've got. I think it's slightly rose-tinted. And I think sometimes we all have that moment when we're struggling with the validity of, you know, the efficiency of our climate change uh, actions to think there are this massive band of people who are chugging around in big houses and massive cars and they're really happy. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think... There's not as many of those people as we think, and you're part of a much bigger team fighting for the solution than those people. You know, it's easy to draw a cartoon image of, you know, I picture a sort of guy with a, a boarding guy with a ponytail and in a big car chugging around with diesel fumes spitting out, and he's in a sort of leather jacket and a suit. But it is that it's a cartoon image. And I think those people do have more anxiety about being chased than we think they do. And you made the decisions to live the life you did because you're a good person. So and this idea that we might as well not try, you would be less happy not trying. So you are making the right choice, even if it doesn't feel that way at the time. Um, but this podcast is part of fighting those anxiety fears head on by bringing you topics like today's, which is concrete action that is being taken by people to make you feel better about the future for the climate. And today we're here to talk about carbon drawdown,
1: which is very exciting. Yes, carbon drawdown or carbon removal, more specifically. Carbon removal. Yes, and we're going to demystify all this offset nonsense that's going on and you know how we, how we go about that and why we have to do it and how we're going to get from here to there. It's an exciting topic, is it not? It is exciting. It's also quite controversial as well. And, um, and we're about to uh, listen to an interview where, where, where Ed... I think takes the bit between his teeth and really digs in. Gets 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 his most combative, which I really enjoyed.
2: Oh. Yeah, I was channeling my inner Paxman.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, let's uh, introduce our guest. And
0: for those regular listeners, you're about to see a different side of Tinkerbell O'Reilly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my enormous pleasure to introduce the wondrous Doctor Gabriel Walker. Now. Dr. Gabriel Walker was, in fact, pretty much the first person that Ed and I invited to be interviewed on the Future Nought podcast when we did it long time ago, even before John, pre-John uh, in 2017, and with typical Future Nought-like efficiency and urgency, bang, five years later. Uh, she's here on the podcast. So um, she is, she declares herself a pointy-headed academic scientist. She has a, a PhD from Cambridge. She's also taught at Cambridge and at Princeton. Um, but she's so much more than, a, than an academic. So if you're watching TV around the turn of the century, you would like to have seen Gabriel fronting various documentaries about our atmosphere or the Antarctic, which is a particular obsession of hers. She's been climate change editor in Nature, which for scientists is the equivalent of uh, Rolling Stone, featured editor at New Scientist. She's the author of numerous books, An Ocean of Air, Snow global Earth, Antarctica, an intimate portrait. And with Sir David King, the Earthworld chief scientific advisor to the UK government, she wrote the hot topic, how to tackle global warming and still keep the lights on. This would be impressive enough. But Gabriel's talents go far beyond uh, being able to communicate. She is a massive agent of change, a corporate catalyst, a, a policy possibilist, an inspiration for investors. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that Gabriel is very good at thinking in systems, but also very good at finding the blind spots that people in those systems have and then directing her and her colleagues and to dealing with the tricky often unseen and often unpopular problems that need dealing with, which means even as committed environmentalists, you will find Gabrielle brokering conversations between oil companies, activists, scientists, investors and politicians, sometimes wrangling whole industries into a new way of thinking and doing, bring everyone new and more collaborative perspectives so that we may get on with more rapid collective action on the sustainability and climate change challenge. Her work has taken her to both poles several times. She's climbed trees in the Amazon. She's swum with piranhas. She's been sneezed on by a humpback whale. She's hooked lava out of a live volcano, and she's flown in zero gravity. I have known her for seven years, and I can tell you she's one of the most well-traveled people you'll ever meet, not just physically, but also philosophically, intellectually, and artistically, which means she can see things from so many angles and get to the heart of matter really quickly. She also makes incredibly good cocktails, knows how to box, has a mischievous streak a mile wide, and her energy levels are off the scale, and I love her, and I'm sure you all will too after our chat today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gabriel Walker
3: wow mark that was quite the intro
2: yeah well I'm, i expect a cocktail <laughs> yeah we're getting we're getting competitive on our intros now you see who <laughs> can give the guests the most plaudits indeed see
1: i just started just started doing them very casually and then, and then ed started doing them properly professionally and writing one so i thought i'd better write one <laughs> so i did so there we go so um a cast on the table gable is a very good friend of mine i've known her for years and she's wonderful and i'm working with her on this uh, very particular problem, um, which we want to talk about, Gabriel. You, you've, you've picked perhaps the most unpopular problem in climate change to deal with haven't you? Want to, do you want to tell us um, what it is?
3: Well, basically, it comes under the category. People call it carbon capture and, and, and get a bit confused about what that means. It's basically taking carbon dioxide, the, the, the bio-greenhouse gas that is actually causing our, our problems, out of the atmosphere and storing it somewhere safe. And you can also do carbon capture to stop the CO2 getting into the atmosphere in the first place. You can put it on factory chimneys, you can put it on any places where you've got concentrated amounts of CO2 coming out. So it's basically uh, it's a mechanism to stop the problem getting worse. And actually also to try and start to make it better. And I've been working on both sides of that. But lately, I've been working mostly on the bit, which is actually carbon removals, taking the carbon dioxide back out of the sky and putting it somewhere where the sun doesn't shine and where it's not going to come back out again.
1: Right now. So, Gabriel, a lot of people would say, yeah, that's all very well and good. But, you know, hang on. Shouldn't we just stop putting carbon into the outside? How Why do we need to take it out? And this is in, in, in the parlance of our podcast. How fucked are we if we <laughs> don't take it? out of the atmosphere, even if we do everything else right in terms of climate change.
3: Okay, so here's the thing, and, and I completely understand this. One of the reasons that many of my friends in the climate movement are very kind of anxious and suspicious about carbon removals is it sounds like a kind of big techno fix? It sounds like you sort of say, Oh, we don't need to worry about anything else. We can just take the, the pollution back out of the air and then we can just carry on with business as usual, we can carry on emitting, and that's all fine. And and it's a very real fear and it's a very reasonable fear. People people have found all sorts of technologies where they said, Don't worry, at some point in the future, we can fix things, we can do that. And then they don't. And then we get more effed as you just put uh, it.
1: It's very polite of you. I, 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 given that I know you, I can't believe you're shying away from the word fuck here, Gabriel.
3: Yeah, well, see, I, 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 I was taught at a convent school, and apparently I swear like a convent girl, so I don't want to mortify myself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very real fear. And, uh, and so that's one of the reasons that we haven't really been focusing on on what to do about actually taking CO2 back out of the sky, because, you know, it's obviously, you should, we shouldn't have made, made this mess in the first place. We shouldn't have been putting so much into mm. the air. Um, but here's, here's the other part of that problem. It's that if you sort of say, OK, well, we've gone too far, but we still can't talk about it because we st- should still be trying to stop ourselves from going too far, then that just makes things worse and worse and worse. And at the moment, the really bad news is that we have left it too late to stop emissions. We just have. I wish we hadn't. I started working on climate change more than 20 years ago, and we knew then what the problem was. And we still haven't turned that curve around of emissions. Mm. So now we've left it too late. We've run out of runway. We cannot get down to zero emissions fast enough to stay below that limit of two degrees C that the world actually set as a a target and and certainly not 1.5 degrees, which is what we really need to aim for. Mm
2: -hmm. I like to think of it as like, you know, the removal van metaphor. You know, if you're moving house or in this case, trying to manage the house of the planet better, you know, you get the removal firm in and you don't want to be singing, my old man said, follow the van down the road but you also need to get Marie Kondo in to do the minimalisation of all your stuff um, before you try and move so you know we've got to move but we've also got to minimalize the emissions in the first place haven't we
3: I kind of I like that analogy just because it gave me an opportunity to go into my old man's. She's <laughs> actually I, I I literally walked through London the other day listening to that. I don't know how you knew. You have a tracer on my phone or something.
2: Wow, I mean it's a convent girl
3: thing, isn't it? <laughs> Very probably. Um, anyway, I, I'm not sure about the moving analogy. I think maybe a better analogy is cleaning up our own mess. Yeah. It's like so so first of all, if you, if you if you go to a picnic spot and you find that it's completely full of rubbish. You might put a sign up saying no more rubbish here, or you might have people on, on, on hand to say, don't throw anything else away. Don't throw any more rubbish out. You might actually stop people throwing more rubbish, and making it worse. But you've also got to clean up what's there. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that's a better analogy for thinking about carbon removals. That we, We've got to stop putting more CO2 in the atmosphere. We absolutely have to do that as fast as we possibly can. And at the same time. We've got to clean up what's there. And so that takes me to the other part of it. Which, well, this is just a bit more heartening. I want, I want to start on a slightly heartening note, even though I know we're supposed to go bad before we get, get better. Because if we can really pull off carbon removals, it stops the problem getting worse because you can actually, you can balance all the emissions that we otherwise can't do anything about. Like at the moment, we've got all these emissions from flights, from, from aircraft. We don't have a good solution for them. We've got emissions problems from, from heavy industry. We've got all these places where it's really hard to fix them and so if we start doing carbon removals now we can balance that but if we carry on we can actually clean up the mess and solve the problem that we've caused and that is really heartening.
1: Now, I'm going to pull us back on track here because you can't go on our show and start making people feel happy in the first half, okay? Because that's just not part <laughs> of the rule.
3: All right, it's really hard to do it. It's really, really hard and expensive. How about that?
1: I want to douse your optimism with some cold, hard facts here, if I may, Gabriel. I think if we look at sort of pretty much any, any scenario, to get to net zero by 2050, we've got to remove something like 200 billion tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere. Is that about Right.
3: That is roughly right. The Energy Transition Commission have done that calculation and uh, they've worked out it's a cumulative amount between now and 2050 and we'd have to carry on removing about 10 billion tonnes a year after that.
1: Yeah. Now, to put that into perspective, that weighs about the same as 10 million cubic metres of gold. So that is quite a lot of of CO2. Um, How much can we remove right now?
3: Brace yourself. So remember that number. We're looking for 200 billion tonnes Cumulative between now and twenty fifty. Today we're removing maybe two million? Mm.
1: Two million. Mm. Okay. I I think your team did an analysis of all the people that are in this space, the people who are in that carbon removals market, and they was and sort of said, like, well, what do you all think you can do by two thousand and thirty? And they said twenty four million tons. It was roughly that. So even even by the end of the decade and so that is um against 200 billion that muted by 2050. So um, we're, we're monumentally fucked, aren't we? There's no way out of this, surely.
3: Incorrect. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel, I'm going to pour my optimism into your vast pit of doom no matter what you tell me. Okay. Because here's the thing. The only way we're guaranteed to be fucked in this is if we don't actually do anything about it. Um, and one of the cool things that can help us is this whole exponential curve thing so we've learned a lot about exponential curves in the pandemic, how fast things can turn around. And, and it also works in technology, too. That what we have to do is figure out how we can get onto the exponential curve of doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling in the amount of, of carbon that we're taking out of the sky and finding places to store. So we did a calculation with the UN high-level champions for climate action. They're the guys that kind of marshal all of the what they call the non-state actors, not the government negotiators, but everyone else for the COP process. And uh, my team have been partnering with them on a program called Rethinking Removals. So we did this calculation about if we want to get to that kind of amount, 200 billion by 2030 and, and 10 billion a year after that, what do we need to do by 2030? How do we get onto an exponential curve that keeps doubling and doubling and doubling? And we came to the conclusion that what we need by 2030 is around 100 million. So it's around 100 million. That means doubling every two years between now and 2030. Now, that's hard. It's really hard, especially since at the moment the commitments are running around the 24 million mark. But from 24 million to 100 million isn't so terrifying. And so basically what we need to do now is put a rocket under all of this, figure out what's stopping it, unleash entrepreneurial energy, do the thing that will make the thing happen. And also make sure that we don't, we're not so frightened of it, that we can build in from the beginning, that everything that might go wrong about it, we can actually try and preempt and start off. Right. I mean, one good thing about this is that it's completely blank slate. So you can actually start with the right principles if, you, if you're careful.
0: Why are we doing that? I mean, slowly seems harsh. And I'm interested in like have it, having worked in the field for 20 years, how your optimism levels are in terms of, I guess, progress has been slow. But is it an exciting time now? Do you feel that we've made as much progress maybe in the last two or three of those 20 years as we have in the 16 or 17 before.
3: In climate in climate generally or in carbon removals or both?
0: Uh climate generally, I think.
3: So so why have we moved so slowly and, and how do I feel about it? I, I I just don't call myself an optimist because I feel like optimism, you know, optimism and pessimism, they're fatalistic. Basically it, you think the future's gonna be whatever it's gonna be. And if I'm generally a sunny kind of person, I'll assume it's going to be good. And if I'm generally a kind of miserable kind of person, I'll assume it's going to be bad. But I don't have any agency to change it. And so the the basically, we can't predict the future, but we can create it. And that particularly applies to climate change, and it particularly applies to carbon removals. And so just generally in climate, I have never seen, we're going at warp speed in the last like two years, I was completely gold-smacked because I really thought that we were getting some momentum finally, we were really getting some action finally, and then along came COVID. And I thought it was all going to go crashing and burning and, and, and everyone will forget about climate and then we'd be in real trouble. But in fact, the opposite happened. In fact, if anything, the whole system accelerated. People were resetting, they were taking the opportunity to reset and doing stuff that they'd intended to do in five years and doing it now. And one of the biggest reasons for that has been a whole the whole business and investment side of this they are the, the guys that can actually deliver the solutions and and you know follow the money the investors have begun to realize that their money's at risk that we're already this whole thing is already underway that the world is already burning that that that's already a risk to the whole economic system that And also, but there's a big opportunity for businesses to find the solutions. And so I I found that I've been, I give a lot of keynotes and I've been speaking more and more to people in the financial services sector who are Mm -hmm. saying, we need to get behind this. We need to understand it. And it's getting more and more mainstream. So that's meant that in the last, I think in the last 18 months, two years, I've seen an acceleration like I've never seen before in solutions In really what do we actually do about this? But I've also seen an acceleration in anger, in rage, in frustration, in polarization, in in kind of my solution and not yours, And it's got to be pure, it's got to be perfect, in this sort of massive divide between the people who are putting the energy into the climate story who are the climate activists, and the people who can be deliver the solutions who are the business and finance. And 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 so I feel like right now we're at this cusp of big opportunity to solve it and also big risk mm. of polarizing ourselves.
2: Mm we've obviously all watched don't look up what would you say to people who sort of make the connection between the mark rylance character and don't look up you know with the sort of uh, commercial opportunity and global salvation type of intervention which obviously didn't work out exactly brilliantly in the movie um uh you know is, is that a simplistic connection to make
3: yeah, well, what I'd say, I mean, I I, I really enjoyed the movie. Uh, if 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 by enjoyed you mean screaming, jumping up and down, yeah,
2: to I think front. we all enjoyed it like that. <laughs>
3: yeah, um I always had two kind of criticisms of the movie. They were a little bit different from other people's. Having said how much I enjoyed it, I think it, I mean it was very funny, and the pot shots that it took at the kind of the the, the billionaire terrifying <sighs> violence techno wizard we can fix it oh no we didn't oh well let's go somewhere else it was it was utterly chilling and in a way to, to bring us back then to uh carbon removals that that's one of the issues here because i think there are there are three big fault lines that people as soon as they start to think about carbon removals immediately kind of stumble across and one of them is but well, the one I've already mentioned, which is if you think about removing carbon, then that might stop you from actually stopping it getting worse. And the answer is we have to do both. But the second one is this kind of nature versus tech thing that happens in the climate space. And that was kind of exemplified by Mark Rylance's character. In a way, the movie, the, the movie implied that everything, that the, the, the way to solve the problem was a techno fix, but uh, Mark Rylance picked the wrong techno fix because he wanted to have commercial opportunity as well. Mm. Uh, but, but what you know what should have happened is that the government should have done the techno fix and people have sort of said yeah but you know techno wizard we're going to you know use these technology to solve the problem it, it's not it's not the whole answer but it's still a part of the answer and this nature versus tech thing is I've, I've just done a ted talk about this and i really focused on and carbon removals on that whole issue about do we use nature do we use technology and what i find is people who are on the kind of green lefty side kind of say, well, I like trees, but not the rest. And people are on the kind of right businessy side say, give me techno, but not the rest. And in fact, one of the things that's fascinating to me about carbon removals is every single solution. You can, you can store carbon. Get this. You can store carbon in trees. You can store it in soils. You can store it in, in the ocean chemistry. You can store it in buildings. You can store it in rocks. You can store it deep underground. You can store it all over the place on Earth. And every single one of those solutions is some combination of natural resources and human ingenuity and technology it's not about wizard techno fix it's about looking at what the earth is offering us for carbon storage mechanisms and then figuring out how we can put the carbon there and keep it there and that really takes a lot of humanity and nature and tech all working hand in hand
2: yeah i mean that's the difference isn't it When I mean, the two angles you might take on that is like whether it's and i'm conscious of all of these things being you know non, non-binary non um but it's whether it's sort of transactional or relational isn't it so like, you know the a, a, an entirely machine-led approach would be very transactional it's like well we've just got to suck suck that carbon out of the air whereas the relational approach might be a more heart-led technology or combination as you talk about in terms of indigenous wisdom and working with the grain of nature and accelerating those natural processes and I, I guess my personal concern is that it becomes very transactional based on the fact that that's where the commercial opportunities might lie.
3: Well I don't I mean I think I might challenge that because I mean let, let's give you one example of one particular carbon removal technology which is uh, biochar so this is fantastic stuff. It's a, It's basically, you take wood, uh, wood off-cuttings. So what happens is the tree, and I still, by the way, this still blows my mind. Every single tree on earth has made its entire body out of thin air. So every plant, every tree, it, it, they're fantastic carbon capture machines. What they do is they take CO2 out of the air and they turn it into the physical stuff. It's, it still blows my mind that they do that. So what you do is you get the CO2 goes from the air into the tree, and then you take the wood or wood off cuttings or whatever, and you burn them with very little oxygen. So they turn into this stuff called biochar, and it looks a bit like charcoal. But the thing about it is the carbon gets locked into the biochar. It can't then escape again. So if you just plant a tree, it's a great carbon capture machine, but there's still a danger that it might burn. If you chop it down, it can rot. Or you, and, so, and, and if any of those things happen, the CO2 go back, goes back into the sky. So biochar, once you do that thing where you burn it with very little oxygen, it goes to this kind of charcoal-y thing, and then the carbon stays locked. So you've taken it out of the sky, into the tree, into the biochar, done. But then what you can do with it is you can put it in soils. You can, If you plough it into fields, then it actually stays in the field, and the carbon stays in the biochar, but it also improves the quality of the soil. Mm-hmm. So you get more agriculture, so you don't need to, use, need to use as much fertilizer. And it turns out that uh, indigenous people in the Amazon have been using that approach for generations, not to to take out carbon from the air but to improve the quality of the soil so what have you got there you've got technology because you have to do this on a very big scale you get the wood you have to transport it you have to burn it you have to take it away again you have to spread it on the fields so that's a lot of kind of big industry technology type stuff but you're also improving the quality of the soil and working with nature you're working with nature and on top of that it's indigenous wisdom Hmm. what is that is that transaction is that tech is that it's all of them together and i think we need to get a lot cleverer about melding all the things that we do best instead of saying is it this or is it that
1: so gabriel um i'm, I'm conscious of our listeners here um listening to that that a lot of people just go well why don't we just plant more trees you know why why do we you know that a lot of people ask me this what, what surely just just let's just plant a billion trees a trillion trees and, and then we're done aren't we why, why is that not the solution?
3: Well, uh, I don't think anything is the solution. If only there were. I've been looking for, we've all been looking for a silver bullet for decades. You know what? There ain't one. Mm. We have to get over it. This is a systemic issue. And what we've been doing for years, we've been, we've been chopping down trees and burning them, or we've been letting trees burn over, the, over the, the, the decades and centuries. And we've also been pulling fossil fuels out of the deep rock, uh, oil and coal and natural gas, and we've been burning that and putting it into the atmosphere. And that's the way that we've caused this problem, basically. So, if we look back at the root of it. So, we've been chopping down trees, and that's caused an increase in CO2. We need to plant trees. I love trees. I'm a very big fan of trees. I've even learned to hug a tree, although not when anyone's watching. But yeah. we, we, we need to plant more more trees for different reasons, because we're also facing a biodiversity crisis, and we're also facing a crisis of of uh, loss of wilderness in the world. And so it's not just plant trees for carbon, it's also plant trees to figure out how we can address that biodiversity crisis. Make sure you're planting trees of the right species Mm -hmm. in the right kind of place. And that's not just for biodiversity, it's also because if you plant a tree in the wrong place, where we've already got climate change coming for us, we've already got forest burning. And so if you plant a tree where it's likely to burn, Mm Then you plant it, you go through all that effort, burns, CO2 goes back into the sky. Mm. Or if you plant it where it's gonna be chopped down because you don't own the land in perpetuity and you say, I'm very nice, I'm gonna keep the tree. And someone else comes along and says, get out of the way and they're there with a chainsaw. So you, you know if, if it goes into a tree, it has to stay mm. long enough that we actually start to solve the problem. Mm. So, so I think it's been clever about how we plant trees so that they address the biodiversity crisis. On top of that, who owns the land where you're putting these trillion trees? What else were they planning to do with this? Hmm. There's a social justice and social equity thing about this as well. And on top of that, any solution that relies entirely on kind of global land use change is already mired in really difficult, challenging solutions. Because, you know, if you're having to to try and get one solution that that, that fits all these different, very local conditions, then, then you've already got a problem. And on top of that, there isn't enough land. You've been pulling coal and oil and gas out of the deep rock and burning that. And you can't balance sort of geological carbon with biological carbon. There's just not enough space on Earth. But apart from that, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I
1: remember you told me that uh, your team had done an analysis of just um, two companies' kind of carbon neutral ambitions. Yeah. And they were said, that well, we're going to take the carbon out with, with trees. And you worked out that those two companies alone would have to plant a forest the size of Spain.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. They wouldn't plant it in Spain. So it's no. not. I mean, Spain's massive, yeah. but but on top of that, what, where do they plant it? Do they go to some country in Africa where they've got other other need for that land, or you know, it's it's not it's not fair.
1: And also, I think there's that, that, that people forget there's another really interesting issue about permanence and durability. In that, if you plant a tree, it takes a, a long time to grow, and the carbon you're taking out. So people will buy these cheap offsets, say, oh, "I'll pay ten dollars or whatever for a ton of carbon," but actually, that carbon isn't removed until the tree is fully grown pretty much so you've got to wait you know 20 30 years anyway so it, it, it's a very slow slow way of pulling the carbon back as well
3: yeah so I, I i really want to reiterate i'm a very big fan of trees you've got to be careful and think
1: about it. we all love trees
3: no but not just that like planting more we do need to plant more but that's not the the be all and end all solution to how we can remove carbon from the sky. is part of it, but it's a relatively small part. Of
1: it, well, so. Is it worth? Because sure I get asked this question a like, lot. So, so, so if, if trees are great and we should plant more of them, we should plant them in the right places for all the it's all the reasons you talk about. But that's not enough given where we are. Um, is could you just run us through some of the other great ways of doing it? So, there's biochar. What else is there that we can do?
3: Yeah, so the the kind of poster child for carbon removals, and the one that's uh, well, I, actually let's let's start if we start at the n- nature end, the kind of greeny end. So we've got trees, we've got soils as well. I talked about how you can how you can use biochar for soils. One of the problems with putting carbon in soils and having them as an extra carbon store. Is that um, it, often it means that you, you you basically have to treat the land in a different way. Basically, don't plough, and so you can store it for one year, you can store it for two years, and store it for three years, and then along you come and plough once, and all of that carbon goes back into the sky. So not very big durability. It's a very very short term unless you can guarantee that you keep approaching it the same way. Mm. Um, here's some other cool things that you can do with the wood. If you if you're worried about the trees burning or rotting or whatever you can actually harvest wood and you can harvest it in a very sustainable way and then you can do things with it like biochar but you can also put it in buildings Mm. so this is an entirely it's a new approach of course we've been using wood in buildings for for a really long time but there's now an, an approach to to make Modern high-story buildings, modern modern multi-story buildings, out of wood,
1: ply scrapers. I think they call them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: Um, And uh, and and the thing is, think about this. First of all, uh, they 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 capture the carbon in the wood, and it stays there because you put it in the building. Secondly, they displace concrete. Cement is one of the biggest uh, emitters of of of, CO two for for making it. Eight percent of global emissions come from cement. So if you're displacing that, it's already a good thing. And they look gorgeous. They look absolutely gorgeous. So, I, you know, it's kind of being clever about how we do this. So that's yeah. cool things. Then what else can you do? Oh, rocks. So th- this is cool. So it turns out that um, the basalt rocks and a few others, they, they naturally take up carbon dioxide. But unfortunately, they take a very long time to do it, like of the order of 10,000 years. So that's not very helpful for us over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. But you can accelerate that process. So the way you accelerate it is you grind up the rock really small. Then there's loads of little surface that the reaction can happen on, so it happens a lot faster. And it turns out you can they can then turn that. It's called advanced enhanced weathering, and it turns out you can you can do that and 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 you start to get the take up instead of ten thousand years, it can be one or two years. And if you grind that rock up and you spread it on fields then that also delivers some um, extra minerals to the soil. So it's another way of making the soil finish better. And then when it washes off into the sea, it can even help to neutralise the acidification of the ocean. So it's, it's, a really, it's, a, it's a really clever one all around and it's just being explored.
2: It's interesting in terms of the kind of the, the ply scraper piece as well because, I mean, Mark and I have done a couple of presentations on this to big construction firms, uh, you know, and these ideas of cross-laminated timber, you know, replacing, as you say, uh, carbon-intensive concrete, but I always people go, oh well, wooden buildings don't last, and I <laughs> I always use the example of the Ying Temple in China, which was <laughs> which was built in ten fifty six. You know, it was sort of built ten years before the Norman Conquest, uh, and it's still sort of going strong. But I mean, the, the question I wanted to to ask uh, Gabriel is. You know, is part of the reason why we are late to the party, and as you say, there's been a big shift in the last two or three years, because of the way that the carbon removal industry originally emerged which was largely coming from the techno fix from big fossil fuel giants from carbon capture and storage from from using the injection of carbon dioxide into old oil and gas fields for enhanced recovery do you think that's still a sort of lingering taint that it was used as a sort of get out of climate change jail free by some of the big players
3: yeah, I mean, I think because I, I just, um, uh, you know, uh, you you're busted. I, I feel thoroughly busted because all of those uh, carbon removals approaches I told you, are it, this, this is the way I'm approaching this now, talking about it because I haven't got to the two big ones. The two ones that really can scale massive in them probably be essential part of the solution. And both of those people are very suspicious of. And in both cases, it's because they've come from the end of the kind of techno wizard plus yeah. uh, kind of oil and gas industry, plus big industry and machines and so on. And that, and that makes people understand to be nervous. So the, the two remaining technologies that I'd, I'd highlight at the moment, and there could well be many more. There's this thing called um, bioenergy carbon capture and storage. That's basically you take wood and instead of turning it into biochar and put it on fields, you burn the wood in a power station But so you get energy from it, which which is good, and then you capture the CO2 that comes out of the chimney and you take it away and bury it. So if you think about that, the CO2 goes from the sky to the tree to the capture in the power station to underground. And So that's, a, that's a, a carbon removal sky to tree to underground. And then the other one, which is direct air capture and uh, storage, um, which I, I think is very, very cool and interesting. And it's just very nascent is take the CO2 directly out of the sky, wherever you wherever you put your plants. And when you say plant, you mean not
1: your industrial plants so or your factory. So these, these are kind of these basically these big machines that directly suck carbon out of the air.
3: But what they what they are basically is the the big the big ranks of fans so electric fans that will blow air over a capture device the capture device captures the CO two and then and then you you take that away you transport it away and you bury it somewhere and and when when I said plants there, it is kind of ironic because here's one of the reasons that direct air capture is potentially a really good idea um, there's there's a, a plant that's been designed in Texas where first of all the aim is it will take out a million tons a year one plant will take out a million tons a year. And that's the equivalent of 40 million trees. But it just takes up the space of, of a kind of a factory. So, so that's a way to use land very efficiently. And you can, kind of, you can obviously put it anywhere. You don't, you, it doesn't depend on whether there's available kind of sunlight or water, all the things that trees need. But also what's clever about that is it, I, I love the poetry of this. It's like reversing the valve because it's, it's right on top of the, the places that Texas oil was, was brought out of. And so it's kind of like, you, you know, the, the oil came out and made the CO2. And so now you're taking the CO2 and you're putting it back where it came from. Mm. And so those two approaches, I think, are going to be very important for getting the scale that we need. And and yet, just as as Ed mentioned, there's there's a big trust issue here. Mm. It's like, who are the people who are doing it? Do we trust them? We don't really like tech. So let's go back to nature. And I would love to do that. I really would. I'd love to do that. If only it would work. I'd really love it. (laughs) But we're too late. And there's just not
2: yeah I mean, is this like a health metaphor though so you know we talk a lot about the fact that the healthcare system is not really a health care system it's a sick care system you know because it doesn't have the upstream intervention and and if you like is this whole emergent nascent carbon removal essentially some kind of emergency medical intervention a sort of mm-hmm. climate cpr because i think there are some people who would also say isn't this just like the spider to catch the fly <laughs> and then we're introducing other more complicated solutions without addressing the sort of the root cause and I know we've talked about the fact we've got to draw down too but for me this is the the thing about the relational aspects that we just we keep we keep meddling if you like um, yeah. and, we, and we will continue to meddle um an infinitum
3: so so here's the thing about that i mean basically as as, as mark kindly pointed out i'm not sure I, I like being described as a pointy-headed scientist but i kind of am that is that was my background and and so basically if in doubt go to the numbers yeah. and see what you need to do um and so if you go to the numbers here You go, okay. if we want to get down to net zero by 2050, which means every single bit of the economy, every single thing that puts out emissions now is not putting out any net emissions in 29 years time. So that doesn't just mean uh, electricity. It doesn't just mean having electric cars. It It means all of the cement and steel and chemicals and heavy industry and all the trucks and all the planes and all the ships and all the way that we make stuff and everything. The only way to do that, right now, we've left it too late. The only way to do that is if in addition to going making heroic strides in reducing emissions, we also take two hundred billion tons of CO two out of the sky. And if we do both of those things, we can get to net zero by twenty fifty. If we don't, we can't. So you know you might say, well, I don't really like that because it's purple. But But bottom line is we have to do both. Mm -hmm. That's what the numbers say. We have no choice. So then the question is, so how do we go about it if that's what we have to do? And how do we try and get it right? Mm. And I think the thing about meddling, I just want to say this thing about meddling, because there's there's another kind of issue here, which is, you know, it's better not to chuck all the litter in the picnic site in the first place. But once you put it there, as well as stopping putting more, you also have to clean up what's there. And and so, you know, it it is this both and, but the, the meddling bit, Uh, There's a whole new set of people now looking at this area of geoengineering. I know. Why don't we put little mirrors in the sky so that we can reflect sunlight by? I know. Why don't we pump uh, aerosols into the upper atmosphere so that we can can make clouds that will reflect sunlight? I know. Why don't we put iron filings in the ocean so we can make the ocean take up more CO2? Now, those things frighten the living bejesus out of me. Mm. They frightened me to death. And I'm going to give you one reason why. Here's a story. Uh, t- hands up if you've heard of the very brilliant Thomas Midgley. Mm-hmm. Oh, hands up. Hands.
2: It's a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wave your hands in the air. <laughs>
3: I'm glad you got the gag, Mark. It's almost like you're a comedian. Thank oh, you very thank much for laughing. Al- almost. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, the very brilliant Thomas Midgley, and, and this is a different, it was about a different issue. But this, I keep going back to this in my head. This guy, so he, he, he was a lovely guy. He's a very clever inventor and, um, uh, and around, the, around the turn of the last century. He really, he, he wanted to help. Things were going wrong and he wanted to help and he's a brilliant inventor. So he decided, he saw that this new newfangled technology of refrigeration, electric refrigeration was coming along. But they were trying to do these refrigerants that kept bursting into flame or were poisonous. He was thinking, <laughs> if you put a fridge in a, in a hospital, then you can get medicines better to be, you know, if, if you have fridges and you can get food to people who need it, it's a really good thing. So he decided to invent a chemical that was completely harmless. It was designed to be completely harmless. He actually designed it so it could not be broken down, so it couldn't possibly do any damage. So, you know, and he was trying to help. And that turned out to be uh, chlorofluorocarbon, mm-hmm. which had never existed on Earth before. And, and that chemical, because it, it was completely harmless, couldn't be broken down, made it all the way to the upper atmosphere, above the ozone layer, where ultraviolet light ripped yeah. it apart, turned it into a monster, and it nearly destroyed all life on Earth. Mm. And by the way, poor old Thomas Midgley, guess what he did before that? That was his encore. Before that, he was the guy who figured out that if, um, if you could make uh, petrol cars run better, if you if you added lead to the petrol.
2: <laughs> what a legacy! Yeah. Well,
1: as uh, Neil Ferguson, the, the historian, says, the only real law of history is the law of unintended consequences.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So what kind of principles could we then introduce? I mean, you alluded to this earlier, Gabriel, like, you know, as you say, you know, you don't want these unintended consequences, but perhaps, you know, inevitably we're going to encounter some of them. So what are the sort of principles for unfucking that we might make sure that we keep these technologies and these combinations of nature and, and technology and indigenous wisdom on track?
3: Well, I I just want to say one important thing before I answer that, because I'm making very clear blue water between those kind of geoengineering solutions, that kind of, oh, oops, we did that, we thought it was going to work, and then look, we nearly destroyed all life on Earth, and carbon removals, two completely different things. Because with carbon removals, we put the CO2 in the sky, we can take it back out again. With all these others, we've no idea what will happen if we just kind of tweak around with the atmosphere doing this and that. But here's the thing, if we don't do carbon removals, we're going to get to the stage where our only choice is to start doing this fiddling and this messing. And mm. that's what frightens me. So I think for me, the biggest reason to pour heart and energy into getting the stuff back out of the sky is before it's too late and before we have to do these other things. Yeah.
1: That brings me on to together. But I think that's something that's really important, which is around the language of this stuff, because, you know, people will click on there. Flight uh, ordering website or whatever, and it'll say, "Do you want to offset your carbon emissions? Or do you want to pay this small amount of money?" Blah blah blah. Can you? There's a lot of real confusion I find when people say, what, I, "What? is this an offset? Is it what? What's what's the difference between offsetting and removing?" Can you explain that to us?
3: Yeah. So, um, just as I said at the beginning, people sort of say carbon capture, and and, and there's lots of different ways that, that that applies. The same thing with offsets. I, I actually I offset my life and um, and, um, uh, and and I thought it would be a good thing to do and I and, and when I finished doing it I didn't feel better I didn't feel like I just sort of got away with it I, I actually felt slightly sick the thing about offsets is that the, the here's the idea and, and and I usually do this by showing my hands but since you've already pointed out I can't show my hands I have to do it in words so so one version of um uh, of this whole thing is that I put a ton of co2 in in the air and mark you put a ton of co2 in the air bad Gabriel bad mark we've got two tons of co2 in the air so what offsetting does is i put my ton of co2 in the air but i say to you mark maybe can you not put out yours and i'll pay you and then that's so that that helps but my ton of co2 is still in the air so you go from two tons to one ton but it's still not zero and that's what most of the offsets that are being offered apart from trees that's what most of the offsets are being offered are it's basically you pay someone else not to do it but your ton is still there and, and and I call that an avoidance offset. It's an avoidance offset. It's one, one tonne that doesn't go in the sky, but one tonne still does. Now, a removal is I put a tonne of CO2 in the air and Mark, I pay you to remove a tonne. So my tonne goes in, your tonne goes out, and we get to zero. It's basically what comes up must now come down. And so that that gives you the answer where you can actually get to zero. So I think we're going to have to have a very big shift at the moment, almost all offsets are that kind of avoidance offset. And we need to shift that to removing it. If you put a ton in, you need to take a ton of CO2 out.
1: Okay, so talking about how fucked we are, and you're starting to sort of unfuck us by saying there's all these various ways of doing it, but a common argument is, and it's a very valid one, is, for instance, if you look at, taking it directly out of the air the direct air capture machines it's phenomenally expensive it's something depending on who you talk to it's between sort of 400 to a thousand dollars per ton of co2 taken out which you know so so a lot of people say this is a ridiculous expensive unproven technology that will never get to where we need to get get it to so you know it's it's just another techno utopian fantasy that is that is stopping us dealing with the real problem
3: so so it is very expensive and lots of the other uh, approaches are very expensive too because they take a lot of energy it takes a lot of energy to power those fans it takes energy you have to you know if you if you're doing you need to you need to chop down the wood, you need to transport it, you need to burn it, you need to transport the CO2, you need to bury it and you need to make sure it stays down there. And so, and then lots of the other, you know, if you're doing biochar, if you're doing enhanced weathering, you need to grind up the rock, that takes energy, you need to transport it, you need to spread it on the fields. So it just, it is expensive at the moment. But the way to get these things down the cost curve is actually to invest in them now. And when I say get them down the cost curve, we all know it happened with solar, it happened with wind. You know, people would say, oh yeah, but they're all too expensive we can't possibly do it, so let's just carry on as we are. Yeah. And, and now solar and wind are cheaper than coal, so so that's part of the answer. But the the other part of the answer is a challenge back to you. Okay. So so if if, if you say no, let's not do that. What's your plan? Hmm. What's your alternative? Because remember, two hundred billion tons. You can't get away from it. And the more you ignore it, the bigger it gets. Every ton of CO two we put in the air today is another ton we have to take out. So so if you don't like it, what's a better plan? And there isn't one.
0: What are the options for? I mean, it it seems like carbon drawdown, as you say, is just inevitable. We have to do it and we have to invest heavily in it. And this is a podcast, I guess, about systems and how connected everything is. Is, Given that this is an industry that has to have massive investment, and I'm looking at an article now with the headline, Wealth of 10 Richest Men Doubled in Pandemic. Mm. Is there a possibility for carbon drawdown to become an industry that levels up in other areas so that investment and that technology goes into countries which need development and need empowering in terms of solving the the climate crisis.
3: I am so glad you asked that because that's actually the third fault line mm. so I, I mentioned already there's one fault line that we've identified which is the if you do, if you do removals you don't do emissions reductions and I said you, we have to build in from the beginning a principle from the beginning we have to do both and then the second one was the nature versus tech and we talked about how how the different technologies or different approaches actually involve both, but the third one is, is at loosely speaking, I call it the global north, global south, or the in- inequity one that that the carbon removals are kind of perceived as something for industrial nations and not for the rest. And actually, uh, we're working with this very brilliant guy James Mwangi, who has just founded a thing called Climate Action Platform for Africa. Um, he's Kenyan and he's an absolute genius. And and so his team and and they're saying, um, actually. If you look at the different different parts of Africa, fantastic uh, storage, carbon storage possibilities. Um, but they're not being used for direct air capture at the moment because it takes a lot of renewable energy. It takes a lot of energy to, to power those fans. So he said, well, what if we can actually find places in Africa? We've got, we've got a, a, a young workforce that's very entrepreneurial. We've got resources. So what if we find places where we can actually build the renewable energy that's needed to power the direct air capture? use one of these storage facilities and then use the leftover renewable energy to lift people out of poverty and actually to, to, to grow the economy. He's saying that rather than thinking about the continent of Africa as a kind of victim of climate change, this could be an engine of growth for countries that really need that engine of growth. Because we're starting from the beginning with this whole industry, we actually have the chance to say, never mind saying it has to just, the money has to go into those parts. Let's make sure that we both get the scale that we need and get the justice that we need at the same time.
0: I'm still, in, in terms of the technologies and the and the the massive investment needed, and, and I'm very wary of not asking <laughs> whether to be optimistic or not, because I feel like we've talked about that at length. But in terms of what the next, you know, you've talked about the masses that's going on and the technologies that exist and, and how much innovation there's been in the last two years, what does the next two years look like possibly in terms of, you know, concrete, progress i wouldn't use the
1: word concrete um, <laughs> we, don't, we don't want concrete progress cross-laminated timber
2: progress yes, we
3: want, yes. Want to decarbonise concrete so that's all right i, I totally approve of decarbonizing concrete but anyway so so what do the next two years look like I mean, basically, at the moment, there's a lot of really entrepreneurial energy going into this. There's a lot of startups. There's a lot of different people looking at different approaches. There's a lot of venture capital going into this. Um, there is a danger that that some of these, these kind of narratives, some of these fault lines will actually derail it from people who are very suspicious. And so I think that what we need to do, first of all, in the next few years is have much better conversations, much better, humbler conversations about how can we make sure this is a very broad church and everyone gets behind the way that it needs to happen. So that's one and my team and i are working on that how we can actually have those conversations so we get all of the issues on the table and make sure we have the right design principles from the beginning to ensure that we can assuage those those challenges and then the other thing is to drive money to where the investment's needed and and, and figure out what all the what all, all the problems with that are and at the moment one of the things that 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 makes it harder to drive the money and harder to build the trust is we don't have the kind of the standards and the certification and the methodologies it's it's kind of it's very kind of number crunchy spreadsheety stuff but we don't have that yet it's all a bit of a free-for-all and a bit of a wild west and so I think what, what needs to happen in the next two years is is people who really have the right track records who are, are just trying this on the ground figuring out what works and what doesn't and helping figure out what frameworks we need around it at the same time as uh uh, the financiers actually figuring out what they need for their models the 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 climate activists figuring out what they need to be able to rely on this and put trust in this and put energy behind it and i think in in two years time we'll really know whether we're, we're on the bottom of that exponential curve or not have we actually doubled the, uh, the, the projects within two years and if we haven't what do we need to do about it so that's where I think that the, the positive mm-hmm. energy needs to go not the kind of I don't like it none of us likes it but if we pull this off we can just we can just not just get down to net zero but we can go back
0: and is that the thing that the the individual can do because th- there's a danger I guess as well that listening to this you, you sort of think oh well it's in hand people are dealing with it it's no. going to become a big industry
3: yeah i mean there is there is a part of this which is you know the experts need to do their expert thing but what all of us can do i mean it's it's really uh, the, the trust gets built by by engaging with this by by talking about it by thinking about it by by having the kind of conversations that can help to open up what what really scares you what really worries you and what can we do about it um, and and that that requires a lot of micro conversations but maybe more importantly i think this is something that within the next year or so everyone's going to be able to take part in this in that instead of offsetting your emissions actually buying into carbon removals that they're much more expensive but there's lots of ways that you can do it where you kind of blend different removals and there's lots of companies springing up to do this there's lots of organizations in fact um, i'm working on one of those myself and it's to, to try and make this easy so that we can all start to start to remove the emissions that we make and the reason that that's a good idea is that at the moment, we don't have enough removals. We don't have enough, two two, two or three million a year. But if if those companies that are trying to make it happen, get enough confidence, if they get money, people saying, I'll put the money in now and you remove it in two years time, then they can get the financing to be able to scale. They can get the confidence to be able to scale. And that means that we'll actually have a better chance of getting on that exponential curve and everyone can do that. So kind of, I feel like it's, it's a bit disappointing to say, watch this space, but I think within the next six months, it's going to be all over the place. Watch out for it and be ready to, to, to contribute in if you can. Yeah,
2: because yeah, otherwise we're just repeating mistakes of the past, aren't we, where these things are done to us or for us yeah. rather than with us. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think they've definitely got to be done with us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the uh, the, the problem we have is because is we've left it so late and we now have to do this. Um, we have to do it very, very quickly. And, 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 and in a way, there's a, there's a really good parallel with the COVID vaccine which is um, lots of financial wizardry went around that to say, if we pay for this stuff in advance, can we fund the research to buy it when it's made? Which is a very concentrated way of getting money in- into something. And you don't normally do that. You usually, Normally you wait to buy something, because it's already there and you take it off the shelf and you already know it exists. Whereas um, with the vaccines, we bought them collectively as, as governments before they'd even been developed, which allowed the researchers to go and put the investment in to create the vaccines at scale and, and, the, and the manufacturers to make them. Uh, mm. And we need to do the same with uh, with carbon removals.
3: In fact, it's, it's funny you should say that because actually a, a few of the carbon removals guys that we're working with have actually started working with an academic economist who worked on the vaccine forward purchasing to say, how can we do that for carbon removals as well? So it's a brilliant analogy. It's exactly what we need to do.
1: One of the things that I know you've been working on is, is, is getting us to talk about Removals in something called NDCs, which is hugely important and very jargony Can you explain to us what an NDC is and why we need to get removals into them?
3: NDC stands for Nationally Determined Contributions, and it's a United Nations language. So it shows how very brilliant they are at communications. And uh, um, and it, they they invented this as a way that every individual government could sort of say, sort of from the bottom up, what they were going to do to contribute to the overall target of getting down to well below two degrees C. So each government says, well, I'm going to do this to contribute to uh, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so they if you add them all up you've add, added up all of the nationally determined contributions that were taken to paris in 2015 it didn't add up it went to some something like around the order of three degrees and i think that was an underestimate and it still doesn't add up after the cop that happened in glasgow uh, but each government is supposed to be now ratcheting those up bringing them back every year saying okay we've tried again it's like it's like you didn't do your homework well enough try harder and that's what the ndcs are and at the moment they don't incorporate carbon removals so they're just basically different ways that you can stop the problem getting worse different ways that you can try and reduce emissions but no government in the world is going to be able to do this without carbon removals for all the reasons that we just talked about. And yet they're not thinking about how they can put carbon removals into their NDCs. Now, if you do that, especially if you're a developing country, if you're looking at the opportunities that this entirely new industry might might provide to you, there's an extra incentive to put this in your NDCs because it's not just that this is actually a way of helping you get to your final answer of the, the number that you need, but it's also a way to look at how you can grow economically in the country as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great quote, I think. I think it's by uh, Maynard Keynes, um, who said uh, it's a perfectly reasonable way to stimulate an economy is to get a whole bunch of people to dig holes, and then pay a whole bunch of other people to fill them in. <clears throat> and it strikes me that if we get this industry sort of off the ground, and we've kind of done that, but just over a period of time, we took all we dug the holes and uh, to stimulate the economy with all the energy we got, and now we're creating another huge industry to fill in those holes. Which actually, if we get it right, could be an, an economic boom.
3: It could be an economic boom. And and that's really the only way that we're going to make it happen. Because if if this is only a kind of waste disposal system, then as soon as something else comes along, it could get sort of thrown out. And so I think we need to figure out not just how to do it right from the point of view of social justice, not just how to do it right from making sure that carbon removals goes hand in hand with emissions, Mm -hmm. and not just how to get it right by making sure it's the right combination of natural resources and human ingenuity, but also how to make sure it sustains without it just all that money going to the pocket of the few billionaires uh
1: i know that you and i talk about this sort of stuff a lot and um there's a bit in your ted talk which i i really advise everybody to go and watch if they want to understand this stuff where you talk about perhaps you know one of your favorite experiences in 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 carbon removal that kind of gave you a a great deal of of hope and it and it involves woolly pigs i believe do you (laughs) want to Could you tell us that
3: story Yes, uh, who knew that the woolly pigs would be such an essential part of this overall story but um i went to a place on the isle of mull which is uh, the future forest company um uh, and and they they were they, they were doing various different kinds of carbon removal i thought i wanted to go and visit and see how they were doing it and when we arrived there the first thing the guy did before we did anything else he's like you say, we drove along to the the estate where they were doing all these different carbon removals he said let's go find the pigs i'm like pigs. <laughs> yeah right so he's like come on come on come on you have to and we we we, we parked the car we ran along the road i think they're over here is going pig pig he was shouting in the scottish accent and then <laughs> and then we come on to this bit and there's these woolly pigs this whole this whole snorting fabulous big great big noses big floppy ears covered in woolly fur woolly pigs and and i did not see that coming so i said what's this all about and he said oh you see we're, we're we're looking at planting trees here and we are planting trees, but we're also, we use the pigs because there's been selective grazing. So you've got this head high bracken and non, none of the native trees can actually grow. So we bring the, the pigs in because it's the closest you can get to a native wild boar without having to have a dangerous animals license. And, and they, they do what the wild boars do, which is they rootle up all of the kind of the yeah. bracken and they rootle up the undergrowth. And, the, and they lift the seed bank to the surface and they give the native tree, trees a chance to start growing so the woolly pigs are helping the native trees start growing and they're planting native trees so that's you know so far so natural but then they were also doing enhanced weathering so they were also they got a local quarry where they got basalt so they're grinding that up and looking to spread that on the fields and then they were also doing biochar they were getting wood offcuts and they're burning that so they had machines and they had nature and they had trees and they had woolly pigs and they were thinking about biodiversity and they were also thinking about machines and it was all there in one place and when I saw that I just thought this is what it can be like this is how we can solve the problem and not just get us to net zero but go beyond and actually fix it and actually start to heal the climate and that was just you know in the the words of this podcast it was fucking awesome
2: (laughs) I I love the fact that we've now had the last two episodes as we're wrapping up series three where we've had John Alexander talking about rutting pigs and you talking about yeah. rootling <laughs> pigs. Uh, and I never realised that pigs were such an integral part of a better future. But uh, I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing.
3: It's essential.
2: There's a reason
1: my band is called Quantum.
3: Yay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Gabriel, I think
1: we should thank you. Yeah. There. That was great. Um, That's great. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you so that was
0: amazing, Gabriel. Thank you so much for giving us your time. You're very welcome. So there we go. How are you feeling after the interview about it, Ed? Do, is it? How, how do you feel about the uh, what Mark described as a slightly more combative nature to your <laughs> tone there?
2: Well, I'm, and I mean, I'm, st- I'm, I find Gabriel very persuasive, you know. Uh, but I'm, I must admit, I'm still a bit conflicted, you know. My uh, on my other podcast, my great, my friend Dougal Kind always says that some of this stuff is like wishing on space hardware because, as you say, we've, we've got to kind of grow this stuff exponentially and it's expensive and it's difficult at the moment. And I'm still sort of slightly torn as to whether this is brutal pragmatism, um, you know, as as Gabriel said very compellingly, that, you know, we are we have to do both. We don't have a choice in this. We've got to sort of knuckle down. But I'm still, I guess, slightly haunted by that, you know, the commercial opportunity of making big money by solving big problems. And I think, you know, we've got a situation here where some of the nature-based solutions are already involving a new sort of tranche of carbon colonialism. Mm. I mean, Oxfam said that we need five times the size of India uh, to do this, which is also pushing up land prices and disenfranchising local people. But so, that, it, but
1: that's Gabriel's point about that. That's why you shouldn't be sort of just planting trees everywhere because no, that. you're taking off other people. So, but know. it's
2: not just it's not just trees. It's you know it's nature based solutions in the whole. So I, I'm wary. I mean, I you know I think you, we've got to do it. You know, um we don't like it, but we need it. It's a bit like a kind of unlubricated colonoscopy. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be awkward, but it might just um save us and so it, yeah it comes back to this this really key thing it's like it's unregulated it's the wild west we've got to get on top of it and make sure it's just not another layer of extractive mm. capitalist colonialism which keeps um creating other un- unintended consequences
1: yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I love Gabrielle so much because she's actually, you know, in that fight. You know, she's she's the person who went to COP26 to get those dialogues going about how do we get all that stuff going in an equitable and sensible and standards-based way because, you know... You're absolutely right. At the moment, you know, there's people selling snake oil and these dodgy offsets and claiming this and allowing people to get out of jail for free and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, but but the science, she said you always go back to the figures. The science says we need to do it, whether we like it or not. And whether we like how yeah. it, it's being done at the moment or not, we have to do it. So let's try and do it as well as we can. And that's, that's what she's dedicating her life to. And for that, I can only admire her. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us
0: on to our earthly confession for this week. Uh, this one comes in from Nick Bedford. Or see if you can guess where he's from from me saying his name in his accent. Nook Uh, Butford.
2: Sorry.
1: Do it again.
0: Nook (laughs) Butford. Right, I'll read up to the point he reveals, and then I will switch seamlessly into his own voice. And it'll be freaky for Nick, because he'll think, I only emailed in, but it sounds like I've left a voice note. Um, firstly, I just want to say how much I enjoy the podcast It's a great way of changing how I think about the world And interact with it I listen mostly while I'm at work Which leads me to my confession I live in New Zealand Brackets, use accent please There are two important factors that relate to my jib He <laughs> <laughs> spent some time in South Africa by the side he, <laughs> has, he, has, he travels a lot, which we'll come on to This is the most specifically targeted accent I've ever used Uh one of the two factors is that we'll have no native land mammals, and the second is that most resource constants for big projects such as housing developments or quarries that's quarries um, or new highways, etc, mitigation, planting of native trees. Um, I've gone to Australia now, and grasses, (laughs) grasses, must be done to offset any damage to land or help protect wetland areas. So for my job, I do lots of planting throughout the winter months, roughly around 40,000 plants a year. Um, Throughout the year, we need to do pest control, which involves the trapping of things like possums, stoats. I've turned into Dame Atma. Possums, stoats, ferrets, weasels and cats to protect the biodiversity of an area. And then in the summer months, we spray the invasive weeds which get into the planted areas. My confession is I have to drive around in a big ute, a big four-by-four puck-up, as you call them, which has a diesel engine <laughs> and then go and killing animals and spraying chemicals everywhere. you <laughs> got F.W. clerk. <laughs> oh, no, the end result is great. And we are turning farmland back into native forest <laughs> or restoring wetlands. But I feel guilty about the process of getting there. I bet he did too.
1: The <laughs> there we go.
0: A little world tour there, carbon neutral world tour.
1: Do you know wow. what what's really interesting about that confession is that in a way it kind of echoes the conversation we've just had, which is like sometimes, you know, to get to where you need to go, like if you're trying to restore farmland, you might have to use, say, technology that's only pow- at the moment powered by fossil fuels. Or I covered um, you know, sustainable rice farming in my last book, and um, it's all about reducing, you know, the use of fertilizer and all that kind of stuff. But occasionally it's like, actually, we need to use a little bit of fertilizer here because that will really help things along. So it's that, that kind of like where the balance is being drawn between, you know, sort of the bad stuff in one corner and the and the natural stuff in the other and and actually if you use them wisely together they can work very well and i think he's probably suffering that that same sort i think i'm doing a good thing but actually it's a bit like a sausage when i look inside it's it's, it's not great but the sausage tastes great but i'm not quite happy about how it's being made and i mm. think actually mm. that's that's something that we all feel and it's something that you know when you're when you're engaging with the future which is a contact sport sometimes you know i mean i would never thought i'd find myself working with the ministry of defense or talking to the foreign office or working with the big mining company and sometimes and and that's that's difficult sometimes but you if you're basically trying to steer things in the right direction you believe you can you use those levers and you keep pure to your purpose which is making the world more sustainable more equitable more humane more just more regenerative then you're always going to have those those problems so so um you know I think I absolve him of his, of it, of, yeah. of his skill and, and say, if you, like, like the, uh, the guy previously, said, if you feel that, then obviously the next time the option comes up to replace your, you then, you know, get an electric one and, and slowly mm. move that thing over, you know, you're on the right path.
2: It's funny, it's like, they, it really reminds me, because obviously New Zealand has that particular challenge, doesn't it, of all of these invasive or introduced mammals which quite happily eat all of their flightless birds.
1: Yeah, and they also have that massive challenge of people doing their accent really badly, Pretty which annoys <laughs> yeah. the fuck out of them.
2: Right? No, I I remember one of my oldest friends, my oldest girlfriend Tom Scott, who uh, worked as an ecologist for years, and he volunteered in a New Zealand nature reserve many moons ago and he was working with this ranger and they were in the middle of this beautiful forest and Tom was sort of like you know wrapped by all the biodiversity and it just it was incredible uh and there was a sort of scuffling in the undergrowth and the ranger went oh hang on a minute mate and picked up a tire iron out the back of the ute and literally went and bludgeoned a possum to death right in front <laughs> oh. of him, because obviously you have to control them and Tom was just like you know absolutely horrified <laughs> at this moment but you know, obviously there's probably better ways uh, of dispatching them. But um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that often goes on. Why do you have to control possums? Because they're invasive.
1: Oh, I see. Are they?
2: They're from, they're from Australia. They're not indigenous to New Zealand and they eat all the bird's eggs.
1: But I mean, they don't do that when Australians come into into immigration, do they? <laughs> Just get a tire iron out, go, you're invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> Crack the Australians over the head. I mean, there must be a more humane way of dealing with the situation. <laughs>
0: And I think that, that answer speaks to how important your work with the Foreign Office is, you know. Yeah. We, just, we can only wonder what immigration policy would be were it not for the secret work of Barry Smell's. And we're grateful to both of you for all you do. So you can uh, email us in with your confessions. Again, we always love hearing what you're doing when you listen to the podcast and all your suggestions for topics which are gratefully received and noted down. And here's how you can reach us. You can reach us by email at hello at John and the That's hello at John, J O N, and the Futurnauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following.
1: I'm Ed Gillespie at FruCool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour.
0: Next week, we'll be back with a, a fantastic guest, John Alexander, and we'll be talking about the future of citizens. That's going to be episode 10. And i tell you what, I'm going to remember that. So um, you, you enjoy the start of the next podcast. Mark and Ed, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. I I just want to flag before we end the show that um, Gabriel actually has just got a TED Talk out about uh, everything that we have been discussing, which is 11 minutes of kind of, uh, so if you can't be fagged to listen to all of us rambling on, then that's 11 minutes of condensed. Yeah,
0: well done for putting that at the end of the podcast, not the beginning. By the way, if you don't want to listen to this
1: hour-long chat, she's done a lovely 11-minute TED Talk without us in it. (laughs) it is great though it's a really good summary and it's worth you know if you want to explain this to other people it's a really good way of saying that's kind of it in in 10 minute burst have a wonderful week everyone
0: thanks as ever for downloading and listening if you have a moment to uh, pop us a review that's always very helpful for us uh, on wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next week take care bye bye
2: bye bye